in order to ensure the security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society. This is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Was Senator Amidala right in Star Wars Revenge of the Sith? Is there a galactic empire in our future? Or can we use artificial intelligence and other technologies to make democracy run better instead of worse? In a new book called Cyber Republic, George Zarkadakis sketches out an action plan for democracy's future with artificial intelligence, blockchain, big data, and a new brand of grassroots activism at its center. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, the mastermind behind Cosmic Log and the Fiction Science Podcast, exploring the places where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and my co-host, science fiction author Dominica Fediplace, as we contemplate the road ahead for democracy. George Zarkadakis has written extensively about artificial intelligence and the future of work, and he's also been involved as a consultant in management and policy projects that include a European experiment in citizen governance called the Meeting of the Minds. We had our own Meeting of the Minds during a Zoom conference, with George Zarkadakis dialing in from his home base in London, Dominica Fediplace in Berkeley, and me in the Seattle area. Our conversation touched on subjects ranging from universal basic income, also known as UBI, to even more way out ideas including data property rights and a constitution for Mars. We're here with my co-host for the Fiction Science Podcast, award-winning science fiction writer Dominica Fediplace, and with George Zarkadakis, the author of a new book titled Cyber Republic, Reinventing Democracy in the Age of Intelligent Machines. George sees AI as a key factor in the future of governance, and it so happens that AI's impact on society and our sense of self is one of the themes in Dominica's work as well. Dominica, why don't you lead us off with the first question? Thanks, Alan, and thank you, George, for being here. So first off, I'd just love to know uh, what inspired this book? Absolutely. So I I think there was a, a combination of factors. Um, my background is artificial intelligence. I have a PhD in, in AI, and I'm actively working in the field with data and algorithms and all that stuff, you know, building, designing systems. At the same time, over the past, uh, let's say, three to four years, I'm leading a, a management consulting practice around the future of work. So that gave me and my team an opportunity to work with clients who are... Um, adopting AI to automate processes and work. So it was those two things that kind of like made me have a point of view, if you like, that I wanted to uh, uh, explain in a book and hopefully, you know, add uh, something interesting in, in the ongoing debate about what the future might be, what would be the role of technology. And um, if there is a future without work, um, 
what on earth are we going to be doing? It's kind of a crazy time because uh, we have issues with uh, employment uh, because of COVID. Uh, we have uh, the most dire situation by some measures since the Great Depression. And we also have this craziness with the electoral process. Uh, it's like a perfect storm where those two issues, the future of work and the future of democracy really uh, are all in flux and the current election season kind of looks like a mess. How would it look different if the things that you suggest were put into place? Can technology really make things better? I certainly hope uh, that it can. Uh, it can make things worse and it can make things better and I think it depends on how uh, societies purpose technology to meet their goals and ends. Now to, to your question Alan, I think and the way I'm structuring this book, I'm, I'm trying to respond to three themes, if you like, that I consider very important for the stability of any, uh, any political system, such as liberal democracy, which is a very fragile system, by the way. And those things are, first of all, trust. Um, this political system is based on trust. We need to trust each other and trust the government for this thing to work and uh, not uh, revolt against the government. The second thing is hope. We need to have some kind of stake in the future. So if we don't have trust and we don't have hope, then things become very bad. And, I, and there's a third thing as well, which I, I'm calling it virtue, right? There is something about democracy that um, calls, demands of us some kind of responsibility, some kind of maturity of thinking. So if there isn't any of that, if, for example, you know, instead of mature adults, we behave as infantiles, uh, then we also have a problem. So on all those three fronts, I think, you know, most people will agree we have, a, we have a problem, definitely, you know, problem of trust, you know, very little hope for the future and not a lot of virtue to go around. In the book, the way I'm sort of, you know, trying to respond in what can we do about those things with technology? So technology is part of the solution, obviously, right? It's not the whole solution. What technology can do? Well, I think technology can, can improve trust. For instance, you know, if algorithms, instead of trying to sort of personalize around your vices, they personalize around your virtues. If uh, algorithms, for example, worked around communities rather than individuals and help communities meet their goals, like, for example, we're a community of citizens trying to uh, discuss and deliberate around an issue of concern. How can we find the right knowledge and the right facts in order to understand the issue? And therefore, we can then go into, into a dialogue uh, among us. And that, that includes obviously people with whom we disagree, right? How can we learn to, to disagree in, in, in a civil way and, and find consensus? And hope, okay, if we have a technology that eliminates work and doesn't give anything back, if it creates a big vacuum that no, no one wants to fill, I mean, how can we repurpose technology perhaps? How can we rethink data and algorithms and perhaps in combination with crypto economics, which features very strongly in my book, to completely rethink uh, digital, the digital platforms of the future, uh, how we create value and how we share economic value among the many, right? So it doesn't go only to the few. And finally, virtue, you know, how, how can we engage as citizens uh, in our communities in order to become better people ourselves? I think that's the big promise of democracy. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's a mess. Definitely, it's a mess. And it's very in, a very inefficient system. It demands time from you from everybody to, you know, to worry about society, which is not the case in authoritarianism where you don't need to worry about anything, unless, of course, you know, the only thing you need to worry is getting arrested. 
Is it just a question of tweaking the algorithms? Uh, because uh, uh, there was a recent uh, documentary called The Social Dilemma, which pointed out that a lot of the social media companies have found that it's more profitable to divide people and to uh, have uh, these powerful emotions of uh, fear and uh and hate, frankly, uh, that's more profitable than uh, kumbaya type of uh, love and getting together and, uh, and let's all build a better democracy. And, and so do you find that there's this problem of profit versus goodness? No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't have anything against profit. I think profit is extremely important. Um, I think what happens is that AI has been advanced over the past few years from companies whose business model is an advertising business model. So they built technology in order to serve this specific business model that they have. And this business model demands that we, the consumers, spend a lot of time on their platform so they can push advertising inventory uh, content to us. So it's as simple as that. So those algorithms are very powerful. They collect a lot of data and they, had, you know, they have a lot of collateral damage. And this is the kind of damage that we are perhaps debating right now you know, in society. Uh, that was not meant to happen. They just want to sell ads. Now, can we do something about it? I think we can, of course, yeah. Uh, that, that we can you know, use this technology for, for other purposes. We can use this technology, for example, to build um, uh, algorithms with different goals, more social goals, perhaps. So it's up to how much you know, incentives are there among the entrepreneurial minds of our countries to pick up this uh, challenge and, and run with it. Is that going to be up to governments to mandate that? Uh, I don't know if you can just trust the profit motive to turn things in a different direction. I, I personally tend to, to trust sort of the profit more than the government in general, right? And I think there is a role for the government as well, definitely. I, I, I don't believe that, you know, we should not have any government at all. I, but I do believe that governments should try to stay out of the way as much as possible and try to simplify things. For example, you'll see, you know, very successful digital governments around the world. Uh, they're usually small states. You know, the reason why they're successful, it's called, you know, for example, Estonia, right? Very small Baltic state. The reason why those guys are so uh, successful is that they have simplified things. They have simplified the tax code, for example, right? So for, if, if you don't want people to evade tax or avoid tax, simplify the tax code, okay? Uh, so the role of government, I think, it will be positive if it keeps the playing field as level as possible. Now, is this possible? I would argue no, not in the current circumstances where, you know, special interest groups have more power to influence government decisions. And this is what clearly what's happening, not just in the US, but in Europe and elsewhere. And in my book, I'm sort of, you know, not just making you know, an abstract argument, I'm sort of uh, documenting that with some very solid research that has shown, for example, you know, decisions and laws from Congress, how much they favor a very small minority in the US. So uh, again, in uh, going back into my book and into one of the propositions that I make is that we should have a more participatory uh, form of government rather than the one we have now. So a mixture, if you like, of more direct democracy and representational democracy. And that's where this sort of idea of citizen assemblies um, comes about and, and features very prominently in, in, the, in the suggestions that I make.
I was just to continue to touch on economics. You mentioned earlier how AI is going to bring about changes in unemployment, which includes uh, mass unemployment. Many people have suggested a UBI as a way uh, to smooth the transition, but in your book, you're very skeptical of that notion. And so I'm curious, what are your problems with the UBI and what are some alternatives? So first of all, I agree with the problem. I just disagree with the solution. So I think there will be a problem, right? Um, and the problem will be not so much, at least in the you know, next few years, not so much of, you know, work being eliminated, but work being very erratic. You know, people will not have stable jobs. And that creates a problem when you want to start a family, when you want to start save, when you want, you know, it, it, it is an issue. So what do we do about it? The and uh, with- I should say that uh, UBI is universal basic income, the idea that you get a payment just because you're a citizen and, and not because you are working at a job. Exactly. So the reason why I find UBI problematic, there's several reasons I'm just going to mention a few. One is that I think this reflects a lot of lazy thinking. It's just a sort of, you know, an extension of the welfare system, an old recipe another very successful one for that, that, uh, you know, the supporters of UBI want to extend to all of us. The second thing is that, you know, the more dependent we become to the government, the less political power we have. So if we want to solve the current problem, which is, you know, lack of political power, uh, we're not solving it by making it worse. Uh, We need to find other ways to empower people to create economic value and share economic value in the world where jobs are not going to be steady. And in the book, I'm suggesting ways like that, okay? For example, one of the things that it's very important to, I guess, understand is that we are giving an opportunity into the future because of automation to start thinking in terms of an economy of abundance rather than an economy of scarcity. So if you look at the history of human species, we started really working, you know, around 10,000 years ago, I would argue, you know, just, you know, going to the fields and doing, you know, work in the fields. If you look before that, you'll see people weren't doing any work. And they were very happy, actually. They, they lived a very productive life in terms of, you know, being very happy and doing interesting stuff. And then 10,000 years ago, we gradually started working. You know, this thing intensified definitely after the first industrial revolution where, you know, farmers and shepherds moved from the countryside into the cities. And right now we take it for granted. Okay, it's, it's, it's a very, you know, strong feature of modern life. But now I think we're at an inflection point, a very close to an inflection point, where work will cease to be such an important aspect of life. And so we have a big question, obviously, you know, so what is going to replace work, okay, in terms of, you know, finding not just the money to survive, but also the, the pleasure of working, right? Being with colleagues, doing something creative, you know, making something move into this world, right? What are we going to do? This is a great question. Um, so I think one a way of approaching this question is to, you know, completely forget the economics of scarcity and start thinking in terms of the economics of abundance. And just to give you an example, right, that has to do with data. The great thing about data, and I think data is an important element for this economics of abundance, is that they become more valuable when they are combined. So you have like one data set with patient data, another data set with genomics. Each one has great value. If you combine them, they have an exponential value. So this combination of of data creates a huge opportunity to rethink a new way of of economics for the future, where we're not going to need UBI. We're not going to need the government to take care of everybody. We can take care of ourselves. 
I had a question about that. So is data going to be like enough to sustain people? Okay, excellent question. So let's put a price. Let's put some dollars on the data. Okay, just give an indication. Uh, Very recently, American Airlines uh, wanted to tap to a government loan, U.S. government loan of about $4.7 billion. We all know what's happened to aviation because of COVID, right? And interestingly, they put a collateral for that loan that was on the airplanes, right? It wasn't the slots they have on the various sort of, uh, you know, airfields around the world. It was their loyalty program, a database, okay? And that database was valued independently, something between 18 billion and 30 billion dollars, right? So that's the kind of money we're talking about around data, okay? So imagine, for example, you know, someone setting up a company, right? And inviting people just to, you know, just to put their data in there about how they travel, how they consume, okay? And all those people that put their data in become, if you like, shareholders in this company, right? Okay, so this is, we can call that like a data trust, okay? Uh, An organization that is administered by trustees that have a fiduciary responsibility to the data providers and all the data providers have a stake in that, you know, and we can execute that through a a, a blockchain, let's say, right? With full transparency. Now this thing, okay, can be extremely valuable for people who want to tap into it and use it to build innovation, create AI, you know, services, whatever. And that thing can provide a lot of income to those who provide the data. So that's, a, that's a, a, you know, an example of a, of a business model we can imagine for that uh, AI economy of abundance in the 21st century. And you're talking about having the providers of that data, that is people like you and me, uh, benefit from that rather than the companies who are collecting the data, which is basically the case right now. Exactly. So right now, the, the problem we have with the current business model is, is that it's a winner-takes-all problem, uh, economy, okay? So if you're a big uh, organization, uh, like, you know, the big sort of Googles and Apples, and you have just, you know, have, have grabbed the land of data, no one can move you, right? And that creates a problem, not just for society, like for workers, but it creates problem for the economy at large. If I'm a startup, I need data and I can't have access to data in order to compete, let's say, with Google or whomever else. So we have a problem right now. We have a deep structural problem around data. And if you think about our competitors, and when I say our, I mean, you know, the West's competitor, the liberal democracy's competitor in the East, um, in communist China, there, they don't have a problem around data privacy and data ethics and AI ethics. That doesn't feature at all in the conversation. You know, all the data belongs to the government and that data is made available to the Chinese companies in order to develop their AI systems. Uh, Whilst we in the West, definitely in Europe and increasingly so in the States, and rightly so, we need to preserve, you know, the privacy of citizens. This is one of our core liberal values. So we need to find a way to to triangulate, if you like, between the problem of solving for privacy but, the, but also the problem of sharing the utility. And I think uh, the data trust is a way of, of getting the both of, the, of both worlds, right? Sharing the utility, preserving the privacy, and at the same time, um, uh, accelerating innovation. 
I think we're going to take this conversation into a little bit of the science fiction crossover realm. But first, I wanted to ask you about uh, actually the rise of the far right. Uh, recently, there was a court case involving Golden Dawn, which was an extreme right political party, which was convicted of being a criminal organization. And, and because of your Greek background, you're probably pretty familiar with this and, and with the repercussions of having the extreme right take more of a role in governance. Is, is that a uh, systemic problem uh, in democracy? Is it structured with the current technology? Is there something that technology can do about that? Or is this a deeper problem? I think this is a deeper problem than technology. I don't think that the reason why uh, in Greece we had a, a, a Nazi party, okay, uh, which was the third party in the parliament. It's at some stage, 500,000 Greeks voted for that party. That was about you know, 7% of the electorate. I don't think those people voted for that party because of technology. So it's a much deeper problem than that. And you know, it's not just Greece, although Greece was the most, you know, the country with the most sort of prominent Nazi party during the, uh, you know, the fallout of the 2008, 2009 economic crisis, right? There was, you know, a lot of, extreme right and extreme left parties you know gaining dominance across europe okay and you know in, in many ways the ghost of the past the ghost of you know the nazi era which was not just concentrated in germany you know there was you know almost the whole of europe was fascist uh, in the 1930s uh they seem to be you know the, the, you can hear the bo the bones rattle if you like okay so it was a very very dark period i think i think we are out of that out of the woods right now. I think, you know, balance has returned in Europe. Uh, the party, the Golden Dawn party, you know, in the last elections got less than 2% of the vote. It's not even represented in the Greek parliament anymore. So I, I think it was, it was a reaction coming from fear. Uh, anger, the root of anger is fear. So, so in the Greek case and across Europe, there was a lot of fear uh, because of the crisis, because of what's gonna happen to our jobs. Uh, fear for immigrants and the way they were portrayed uh, in the media. And, and that fear created that anger that uh, gave fuel to those extreme uh, politics, both from the left and, and indeed from the right. And we want to also talk a little bit about science fiction. So we're wondering, uh, are you a science fiction fan? Are there any uh, books or TV shows or movies that really excite you? I'm a huge science fiction fan. Fan. I, I write fiction as well, and um, my fiction books are a bit of a crossover between science fiction and, and sort of literary fiction, but I'm a huge, huge fan of science fiction. I think science fiction is, it's a simulation, it's just like a holodeck, right? A literary holodeck, where you can go and imagine worlds and, and experience those worlds, experience all the, all the possibilities, and then come back to this world the wiser, okay? And, and it's, 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 it's a great, great genre. So I'm, I'm very much a fan. I was struck by uh, the whole idea of uh, how democracies advance or how they decline. And, and speaking of science fiction, one of the uh, scenes that really stood out for me is the scene in Star Wars where, uh, where a character says, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause and, and your discussion of the rise of uh, extreme right parties uh, struck me that uh, are there lessons from science fiction that uh, can help us deal with keeping liberty from dying? 
So it's an interesting interplay and dialogue, I think, between many science fiction films and, and movies with, you know, both the past and, uh, you know, possibilities for the future. Like, for example, you know, you mentioned Star Wars, uh, you know, my interpretation of the politics of Star Wars, that it, it, it comes perhaps from, from ancient Rome and how the Republic uh, became an empire, but also in, in Germany as well, right? How the Weimar Republic degenerated into, uh, you know, a dictatorship. Hitler was voted into the Reichstag, into the parliament, right? And Mussolini in Italy, again, you know, all those guys uh, de were democratically elected and then, you know, took over power. Um, I also find interesting, you know, when science fiction is looking into the future, is looking into different sort of uh, political systems, uh, maybe in, in other worlds, uh, maybe in the stars, you know, I'm thinking perhaps, you know, the dispossessed, let's say, by by Ursula Le Guin, right? Or, uh, you know, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, another great novel, great, you know, favorite of mine by Robert Heinlein. You know, both those, those novels are interesting because they imagine, you know, the future human colonies in, in, in the moon, very, very near, but in very different ways as well, you know? So it's, uh, it's always interesting to read science fiction when you are interested in politics. Is there a concept from your book that you would love to see worked into a science fiction novel? What, what sorts of things would make for the best uh, plot for, for the future? So I'm very, I, I was very interested when I was writing the book, whether, you know, this idea that I'm presenting in the book, is, which is based on, you know, crypto economics and governance of the commons through crypto governance and rethinking AI in terms of cybernetic systems, you know, all those ideas. Uh, if they could apply to a, to a space republic, okay? And I started, in fact, writing a chapter about the application of uh, a democratic political system for, for space. Uh, my publisher dissuaded me from including the chapter in the book. <laughs> and, uh, well, I don't know. And I didn't want to argue the point too much. So I said, okay, fine. Uh, we'll keep it on Earth. We'll keep it earthly. Uh, for this time, but uh, I, I took that chapter and kind of like uh, put it on my blog and, uh, you know, it kind of like created a dialogue. I, I, I even, you know, got together with some equally mad people like me and, and put together a constitution for Mars. So I'm very interested about, um, you know, space colonies and how they will be governed. And I think it's a, it's a great question, a question that we should begin to explore in earnest, right, across the world, right? We, we really need to think of hard you know, what sort of political systems we want to evolve in, in the solar system? Will there be extensions of Earth? Will there be like, you know, a US on Mars and, a, and an England on Mars and a China on Mars? Will it be something different? How are they going to be governed? Will it be like, you know, the Soviets had, they, they did a lot of serious work around uh, space colonization in the political system, but obviously for them it was straightforward, right? It would be like a communist society in space. Um, so yeah, these are very, very good questions. Do you have any advice for voters or for lawmakers, uh, people who might be in a position to either uh, use technological tools or use their good sense to avoid uh, having these dystopian uh, visions of uh, democracy's future take place? Or, or are there things that could be fixed without writing a whole new constitution uh, to make the political process run better? 
Let, let me just suggest a couple of things, right? One, which is for the immediate uh, future, like for the next month or so, uh, especially in the U.S. elections, and one perhaps which is for, for later. I think one of the, the big threats uh, that are, exist right now for our political systems, uh, given the misinformation, the loss of trust, the uh, digital media that everybody's uh, engaged with, is this technology called deepfakes. Okay, so uh, as you know, deepfakes are sort of algorithms that can create uh, videos of people, sometimes, often, you know, everyone, anyone, even imaginary people, but even real people to say and do things uh, that, that are fake. Okay, so imagine, for example, a deepfake uh, of uh, either a uh, candidate uh, after the election circulating around the world in the U.S. and saying, you know, I don't accept the, uh, the result of the election and I'm calling on my voters to go on the streets and, and burn everything. Okay, we need to resist. You know, imagine that, imagine that scenario. So uh, this is a very real scenario, I think, you know, given the level of technology of deepfakes right now. So uh, immediately something needs to be done. Uh, around that, okay? Definitely this, there's a threat right now from deepfakes. Now, in the, long, in the long term, and this is something that I'm discussing in the book and I'm suggesting, I think that there should be a new uh, institution for liberal democracies that will involve direct citizen participation via citizen assemblies. I believe that very strongly on that because I think the reason why there's so much loss in trust in democracies is because we are not involved in what is happening. Okay, just to give you an example from the UK where I live, uh, every, you know, there were a bunch of experts, you know, you know, very good experts in epidemiology or economics and the government discussing about what should be done about COVID. But the public was not involved in that conversation at all. Okay. The end result was very suboptimal, not just for the UK, but other countries have the similar problem. Right. And now we are so many months in into the, into the pandemic uh, we see clearly that it was not just, you know, a very simple thing, just close down everything. There has been extremely, you know, repercussions across, you know, public health, uh, minorities, women, young people versus the old, you know, it, it's a total mess. And not only that, liberal democracies had to become oppressive for their own citizens. We are living actually a nightmare right now, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the pandemic. And I believe that one of the reasons why this is happening was because the public was not involved in the conversation and we and the public was not and, and therefore there was not acceptance by the public of, of those measures so to cut a long story short i believe that this needs to change and it will improve a lot both the trust and also the virtue that is necessary for a functioning democracy of the future well thank you so much uh, i guess my final question would be you talk about the age of intelligent machines that's written into the subtitle for your book and uh, so many science fiction stories extend the age of the intelligent machines in one way or the other whether it's uh, the terminator movies or star trek with the federation of planets or speaking of the pandemic uh, there's a movie for that too 28 days and so if you were writing the plot for the years to come what kind of plot would you write well i'd probably write a different plot uh, completely different from what is already written and i'll explain why um, the way we discuss and imagine AI right now has to do a lot with one very core idea that sits at the heart of artificial intelligence. And this idea is the idea of autonomy, 
Okay. This idea uh, came about uh, the moment artificial intelligence separated itself from the core body, the core intellectual body of cybernetics back in the 1950s. So the first manifesto of artificial intelligence in 1957 clearly stated that the purpose of artificial intelligence is to build a, an intelligent machine that is actually autonomous. Okay. Now, autonomy is different from automation. Autonomy requires some kind of reasoning, some kind of free will, ultimately, right? And there's various degrees of free will. And I find this deeply problematic, deeply, deeply problematic. And I believe that all the debates we have around AI, all the nightmares and fears we have around AI is because we are we have taken as granted that AI systems will be autonomous. So all this conversation, for example, about general artificial intelligence, okay, um, becomes very, very easily a conversation that has outcomes such as lethal autonomous weapon systems. You mentioned Terminator, okay? I think we need to radically rethink the purpose of AI. And this is one of the arguments I make in the book. I believe AI should not be autonomous. AI should be uh, part of a, of, a, of, a, of a broader systems design that includes humans in the loop. So I think we must repurpose and rethink AI radically if we don't want to end up with uh, AI becoming an existential threat. Well, there's our call to action to conclude our conversation with George Zarkadakis, uh, the author of Cyber Republic. And I, I want to thank George and I want to thank uh, my co-host, Dominica Fedeplace. And uh, let's hope that your vision goes in a positive direction. I, I think you've got some sensible ideas here. And so let's hope that they're heard. Thank you so much, George. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Dominica. Thank you very much. more about Cyber Republic and the wider context for the debate over democracy's future, click on over to the Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. I'm including links to places where you can buy Cyber Republic online, as well as to blog posts where you can read what George Zarkadakis has to say about setting up governments on the space frontier. And while you're online, check out dominicafetaplace.com. Don't worry about the spelling. You can follow the link from Cosmic Log. One of Dominica's short stories is included in Volume 5 of the Best Science Fiction of the Year, a collection edited by Neil Clark. So, until next time, this is Alan Boyle for the Fiction Science Podcast, advising you, as always, to watch the skies and vote.